following episode of GradCast contains four different interviews from students presenting at Western's Neuroscience Research Day 2020. These interviews were hosted by Greg Robinson and Ariel Frame. Hope you enjoy. We're here with Sarah Clapman from the Neuroscience Department. Just finished Neuroscience Research Day. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us about your work? Sure. So I study music and dementia, specifically Alzheimer's, uh, and I'm interested in paradoxical lucidity. This is a phenomenon that occurs in dementia where people who are very progressed in their neurodegeneration suddenly and inexplicably have a big upswing in cognitive function. So they go from not being able to recognize family members or know where they are or use language sometimes to being able to do all of the above. And we don't know why that happens and we don't know what sparks it. One of the things that anecdotally has been very strongly correlated with paradoxical lucidity is music. So my background is actually in music, and this was really exciting to me when I was a kid because my dad is a pianist, and he would take me to long-term care homes where there were lots of older folks, and a lot of them were very progressed in their dementia. But when he started playing music from sort of ages 10 to 30 when they were younger, a lot of them would have this crazy reaction where they would come back to life. It felt like they had disappeared and then they were themselves again. And I didn't understand what it was, and I wanted to know more, which is why I ended up studying music and psychology through undergrad. So now my uh, research is looking at what it is about music that allows it to elicit paradoxical lucidity. So I'm looking at two things. I'm looking at tempo, so how fast the music is, and I'm looking at familiarity. So my theory is that how familiar a piece of music is has a real impact, Um, but I'm looking at... Uh, whether one of these two things has more of an impact on music's ability to cognitively arouse people. I feel like if you were to have listened to one song like over and over and over again and have like a very similar reaction, like you're almost conditioned mentally to do something, right? So maybe like listening, does that, am I just like completely out of the realm here? But like, is there almost like a conditioning aspect that like music could play? Yeah, absolutely. So if you listen to the same song over and over and it's very familiar, Um, it's going to sort of elicit more of a response in your brain than something that's unfamiliar. Um, And that's really important in my research because we're looking at the reminiscence bump. So again, these ages sort of 10 to 30, and songs from that time, they're linked with often with very strong emotions. So the reminiscent bump is mm-hmm. when you're just early on and yes, you're exactly. like 10 to 30 years old? Yeah, so yeah. it's it's a, a phenomenon in memory research where people have a tendency to remember memories from those ages much more strongly than from other periods in their life. And there's a couple of reasons why this might be. It might be because a lot of really important life events happened during that time. It might be because these are the stories that we tell over and over about you know getting married or a first girlfriend or going to school away from home, that kind of stuff. Hmm. Interesting. So when I'm really old, I should listen to, I should listen to Justin Bieber. Absolutely. I constantly talk about <laughs> how we're going to be playing Rihanna in seniors' homes one oh, day. Oh, Rihanna, and it yeah. There we are. brings me joy. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Wow. So it's like it's conditioned certain emotions, and those emotions could be beneficial to their mental capacity. Well, yeah, sort of. So the idea is if a memory brings back a lot of these personal, um, if a song brings back a lot of these personal memories, we call them episodic memories, okay. sort of episodes in our own life. If a memory brings those back, they're also going to be eliciting these emotions, very likely. You know, you think about how you felt when you heard the music, who you were with, that's all sort of emotional stuff. And those emotions, what we're expecting to find is that they are part of the reason why this music elicits such strong cognitive arousal. So it kind of, it's like revving the engine on your brain. Mm-hmm. That, you know, uh, it's interesting that it's music. Like, why, why music? <laughs> 
of all things. Yeah, that's Couldn't you remember question. a smell or like a, a um, something you saw? Like, a, oh, that's kind of a cool, interesting tree. <laughs> yeah, know. absolutely. So um, music evokes autobiographical or, or episodic memories, just like we said. They can be evoked, these same kinds of memories, by other things. Um, there's been research looking at like photographs. Um, smell is another really good example. We have a very, very visceral reaction to smell memory because it kind of, unlike a lot of other senses, it doesn't have to stop at a whole bunch of different overpasses in your brain. It just goes straight to the important parts, mm. which is why if you smell a memory, it it's like you're back there, um, which is really cool. But I think what's neat about music is that it's so prevalent in culture and it's there's such a it plays such an important role in our sense of self. I don't know a lot of people who don't have some feelings about music, and that's not like a lot of other things. Like yeah. if I said, whoa, I love talking about neuroscience, you're not going to have most of the population be like, yeah, me too, man, here are my strong feelings. But with music, people have strong feelings. I guess it's all feelings almost, because it's, like, it's not really like tangible. It's like, well, these are just sounds, and we're like, whoa, well, how do we describe them? We don't have like words. Like, you know, like that note and this note, like, unless you're like a musician, you're not going to know the difference between a G and a C. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think music is a very accessible form of art and creative expression. Um, and there are definitely like programmatic versus other kinds of music where like it tells a story or there are words to it or maybe it doesn't. And it can evoke memories and emotions and feelings anyway. So it's, it's a very powerful tool. And it's like music is so like each song is so different. There are songs that you'll hear one and you'll be like, oh, that sounds like it you know, copied off this old song. But like a lot of songs you listen to are so different. Um, at least in my non-musical background experience, I feel like that's it's much more complicated than just smell, where like things can kind of smell similar. Whereas music, it's like there's thousands and thousands and thousands of songs that sound completely different. Now you're smiling at me, like maybe you have a different opinion. Like there's like same chord progression or something like I that. I mean, right? I but think I think uh, it's really what music means to you. Yeah. Format is great, and it allows for a lot of variety. I think a lot of popular music that people relate to, and a lot of the songs that I'm using in my study, they do have similar sort of underpinnings in terms of harmonics and, and the music theory behind them, the chord progressions. But what you do with that, it's completely up to you. Like, everybody can have the same paint colors and make completely different paintings. Yeah. It really doesn't matter. Like you could hear one Rihanna song and absolutely love it, and you could hear another <laughs> Rihanna song and absolutely hate it. I don't think that's possible. No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> completely impossible. <laughs> Uh, well, um, you know, it's really cool how you incorporated like your life's passion. Like you go way back. You're like, I remember when, <laughs> when, <laughs> yeah, when I was been, a kid it's and been you really incorporate cool. that in sort of into your research. Um, that's really cool that you do that. Oh, thanks. Uh, were you able to convey that to people when you were presenting today? How was it, how was it presenting it at NRD today? Oh, it was lovely. Uh, it's a great event. I mean, this is my first year of my master, so I'm kind of wandering around blind, but people are very generous in showing me if I'm going off course. Um, no, I had a great time. I, I like telling stories. I think um, communicating science effectively is something that I am still learning how to do because I don't come from a science background. So I was raised in performance. I was raised in you know storytelling and connecting with people. Um, and I, I really like bringing that to science because I think it makes it easier to explain complicated concepts in ways that people don't find so intimidating. So I really enjoyed research day because I did I talk about, you know, how my science relates to me and my experiences and my values. And I think it's important to be transparent about that. How does one go from your music background and I'm an undergrad in, I'm assuming, music to coming into their master's of science 
in neuroscience. Like that seems like a big jump. I'm sure there's some some things that happen in between those events, but yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel like a thief in the night, like you know, like a fox in the hen house. I. Uh, I, I did so I did this psychology degree at the same time as I did my music because I was so interested in paradoxical lucidity um, and then I got to the interview stage for grad school because I was like I don't know what I want to do with my life I'll just do more school that seems sustainable um, and I was interviewing at a bunch of psych programs and, and neuroscience and I thought you know I'm interested in brains this is what I want to study I'm interested in this specific effect in this specific disease and this is the way to do it um, and Western was lovely about saying, well, you know, you have the qualifications for psych, so I mean, you, why not neuroscience? That seems useful. So you even knew about paradoxical, paradoxical lucidity. I Did didn't I have a right? name for it, but I, yeah. I did know about you it. You knew about it in your undergrad. I did, yeah. yeah. I mean, hmm. I knew about it from the time that I saw it when I was a kid. Yeah. Okay, you actually saw it as a kid. Yeah, so my dad would take me into these these care facilities, and I'd see people who didn't recognize their family members, couldn't speak, didn't know where they were. They'd start singing along to lyrics. And it was crazy. Wow. It was magic. And I thought, I need to know what's going on. It's almost like you're meant for this. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of curious with, like, you're saying that it can elicit certain emotions. Like, how exactly, how do, you, how do you measure these things? That's a great question. So there are a lot of ways that we can do that. But for our study, we're looking at pupillometry. So this is how dilated your pupils are. And that is a measure of cognitive arousal. So basically how hard your brain is working. Okay. Um, you can measure emotions in a whole bunch of ways. You can look at skin conductance, which has to do with like how much you're sweating. You can measure heart rate. You can measure breathing. But we're looking at something that gives us sort of uh, a, a looking glass into the brain function because that's really what we're interested in. Interesting. So that's like how dilated your pupil is. I may have this wrong, but it's sympathetic activation or parasympathetic is that yeah so it might be in the uh, right area no you're doing really well yeah, okay. it is it is sympathetic uh, absolutely so this okay. is your fight flight or freeze system yeah um, and it's um, analogous to the activation in your locus ceruleus which is a, a portion of your brain it's very old very important and it's involved in arousal so okay. basically if your pupil is more dilated you are more aroused or your brain is working harder Interesting. So you can use that as like almost a global function of the brain or you're specifically saying in that little region you're more aroused. You're basically saying in that region. It's yeah. pretty cheeky to be like, ah, your pupil is dilated, therefore your brain is working You're, very you're working hard. hard. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a leap that I probably shouldn't make as a scientist. You, you slipped in there. Uh, it's a region of the brain that's very old. I mean, uh, presumably one part of our brain can't be older than the other, but, I, but you mean evolutionarily old, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So is, is this sort of like our, I mean... Some people call it the lizard brain or something. Yeah, the reptilian brain. That's <laughs> yeah, another, but yeah. like, you know, as our brain evolved, mm -hmm. as all animals evolved, then mm -hmm. we have like some of that that area that is similar to our ancestral. Yeah, absolutely. Animal. Well, they they right? call and it. We the, can, yeah. can we just like use that part of the brain and then all the new <laughs> stuff is like kind of we can't we, no, we can do without it. <laughs> I mean, language is kind of gross. Whatever. Yeah. No, it it is part of um, a, an evolutionarily, a phylogenically older part of your brain. So if you think about the development of the brain as occurring over many species and many thousands of years, the more primitive the life form, the more primitive the brain. But it doesn't just go away as you move on to the next step. You actually, it's kind of like layers. It's like a cake, and every evolutionary adaptation and move up from, you know, uh, reptiles and amphibians and mammals and all that kind of stuff, you get a more complicated brain until the top layer, which is the, the cortex. In humans, it's called cortex because it looks like bark. It's all kind of crumpled up like a piece of paper. That's what allows for things like language and uh, the sort of higher level human cognitive functions. But this, the locus ceruleus, is much lower down in your brain and so much older. 
So this is something that like your brain is just doing automatically. It's not like something that you have direct control over, though. That is that is a can of worms. Uh, yes. Ooh. So uh, arousal in the brain and in the body uh, is definitely an instinctual thing. There are ways mm-hmm. to get around it. You know, things like biofeedback and mindfulness, uh, okay. where you can sort of you can work the system. So like if I think of a baconator, I'm going to get a little <laughs> more mentally aroused. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. There are all sorts of systems involved in there. There you're getting into like the the limbic system and the rewards that that implies and, and dopamine and all these feel-good neurotransmitters. Lots of very cool stuff for sure. Wow. Okay. Well, it's, uh, you know, we're going running pretty close to time here. Um, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been lovely. Yeah, you know, uh, glad to hear that you had such a great experience so early yeah it was fantastic your program, I'd definitely you know? do it again you know, a lot of people uh who start their start their graduate degree and then they don't do anything till like right at the end because they get like kind of like worried to get out there and you show that it can be done it can be done successfully that's the music <laughs> <laughs> excellent thanks for coming on thanks We are here with Raj Kamalman from the Neuroscience Department. Raj, thanks for coming on. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm a second year master's student, uh, so I'm quite a bit into my research now. Uh, I'm looking at a rat model of autism. I know that can be you know, quite a lot to take in, so I'll, I'll start from the beginning. Uh, I'm interested in the auditory processing alterations we see in autism. So you might have, if you if you know someone with autism, uh, you might know about uh, hypersensitivity to sound. Um, maybe they have uh, problems with language, um, and in fact, language uh, problems with language is actually uh, a big part of uh, autism. Um, so. In order to study this, I uh, decided to look at a monogenic uh, a cause of autism because, as you may know, that there are uh, many uh, ways you can get aus- autism. Um, for example, uh, there are genetic and environmental factors that can uh, contribute to it. Uh, there's often interactions between the two. Um, but. Uh, like I said, I'm particularly inter- interested in the monogenic cause of autism. Uh, so I'm studying a gene called catnap2, um, which in humans, when uh, knocked out, is known to uh, cause language regression. So uh, at one point, they, uh, the children uh, lose the ability to uh, have language. And uh, we decided to study this in a rat model because uh, this gene is actually present in rats and songbirds, in fact. Um, And when knocked out, they have auditory processing deficits. Songbirds, for example, uh, will not be able to produce songs. Um, And uh, in rats, we've shown that they have uh, altered behaviors that we can test uh, for auditory processing, uh, such as uh, increased startle reflexes to uh, given uh, sound stimulus compared to wild types. Uh, So I am interested in the neuronal basis of uh, these altered auditory processing behaviors. And uh, I decided to do electrophysiology on uh, these neurons in the auditory cortex of uh, this rat model. Um, 
For those that don't know, what is electrophysiology? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so essentially, uh, I am able to place an electrode on a cell body of a neuron and record its electrical properties. So I can record its uh, action potential firing, its uh, synaptic activity, uh, where, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but uh, when like a presynaptic neuron uh, may release uh, uh, neurotransmitter vesicles, uh, causing uh, the postsynaptic neuron, which I'm recording from, uh, to depolarize. And you know, if they, there are enough uh, neurotransmitter vesicles, it'll fire an action potential. So basically, I can record this like intrinsic uh, activity in the neurons that I'm interested in. Okay, let's uh, let's step back uh, a couple steps for a sure. Second. Yeah. So you uh, you're interested in studying autism, and you thought, okay, how do we model this? Yeah. Well, a lot there's a lot of ways to model autism mm -hmm. because there's also a lot of genes that ca that potentially cause autism, and you found one mm -hmm. in particular that rats also happen to have called catnap. Yes. So you've got a a, a a rat where catnap is in particular. You removed it. Right, that's what yeah, knockout means. It was knocked means. out. Yes. Okay, so you remove yeah. so catnap, you removed the catnap from gene. your rat, yes. and it now has problems auditory. So it has auditory problems as well as other autism-like symptoms um, that humans also exhibit, such as hyperactivity, uh, uh, hypersensitivity, um, and uh, seizures as well, which so we you, see in so humans. So you must have like when you f when that mouse when that rat was first uh, characterized when you. F you first looked at it. Couldn't it was nap. probably um, couldn't nap. Couldn't nap. Couldn't <laughs> nap. But <laughs> maybe not. It's not a cat. <laughs> That's true. So um, it must have been. Um, I mean, not. Uh, must must have been validating that that, that it, it, you could instantly see it had issues that were very similar to uh, to those that For you sure. see in autism. Because I mean, it's sometimes you try to model something and you see it doesn't have anything similar. I mean, yeah. I mean, we can't say that these rats have autism because rats can't have autism right but the best we can do is uh, model the symptoms that we see mm -hmm. um, and yeah I guess it's like hitting the jackpot when uh, there's you know one single gene that is sufficient to cause uh, phenotypes mm -hmm. that are similar to that seen in humans so you have your rat you pretty clearly is exhibiting some things that are very similar to what you see in, in autism albeit it's not doesn't have autism but yeah. it's similar that's right okay and now uh, you want to look at the actual cells in the brain, namely the neurons, and mm -hmm. see how they're actually functioning. Yeah. So you want to, and those cells, neurons, you know, yeah. conduct electricity. That's what neurons do. Yeah. And you have this way of actually detecting how it does its electricity sorts of things. Exactly. Um, and that's yeah. where that electrophysiology comes in, which you explained is actually how the, how the, how the neurons connect to each other and how they, how they communicate with each other so that's a really cool method that you're doing yeah okay <laughs> so i have a question a little bit about the model considering yes. you brought up the whole songbird thing because it kind of just songless songbirds songbird. yeah, songless, songless, songless songbirds yeah. um, that was kind of cool um you said that i think you were doing startle something startle with the yes. with the rats so that yes. that's i mean i'm assuming that's you do a loud some sort of sound to the rats and that's what you're looking at mm -hmm. in terms of auditory processing. That's right. But with the birds, it was actually the bird itself making a song. Mm -hmm. Like, do, oh wait, I'm kind of roundabout asking, do rats have songs? And rats. are rat songs different in the catnap rat? <laughs> uh, rats don't have songs, uh, but they do have vocalizations. Okay. Uh, they have uh, ultrasonic vocalizations. 
Um, and I'm not sure. I think this is this is ongoing in our lab. We're actually measuring this now, whether uh, knocking out the catnap 2 gene uh, alters the vocalization, the ultrasonic vocalization, should I say, in uh, rats or pups. Um, but in mice, this has been done. Um, and I actually showed this in my presentation today as well, uh, that they have uh, fewer uh, vocal calls, which is ah. like a social call, right? So they do have auditory behavioral alterations. Okay. Just out of yeah. curiosity, does yeah. anybody like know why this is happening? Is it like these songbirds will sing a song and then they'll be like, oh, that really hurts and they stop singing? Or it's like the actual process of singing is like difficult for them. Well, I guess so in this case, the rats and the vocalizations. Right. You'll know about the rats, but yeah, in, yeah. Pr in principle, the same. I just thing, like right? saying songless songbirds. Songless songbirds. <laughs> um, well, I think um, the fact that catnap two is conserved across the species, um, and it causes uh, disruptions in um, like the auditory behaviors, the ability for humans, rats, song uh, songbirds to um, produce. Uh, some kind of auditory behavior. It means that it's uh, working at a very basic level of auditory development because it is a developmental gene. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that uh, the songbirds are trying to make a song and they can't because it hurts, but perhaps they, they can't uh, produce songs. Interesting, yeah. Because they don't know how. Or, so you yeah. presented this today at I NRD. Yeah. Um, and you actually, so a lot of people, um, I mean, most people, most of the presenters were uh, doing a poster. Uh, that's right. And today yeah. you did a an oral presentation. That's right. And that's kind of like a... Because kind of she's a boss. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> she's a boss. So how was that? I wanted to know. How was uh, that talk? Have you given an oral presentation like this before? Uh, no, I haven't. This was my first. Uh, so yeah, it was really fun. Um... I think it was a good experience. Uh, I have wanted to get this experience, and I would have had to present uh, this information anyways in seminar in a few months. Um, so I'm glad I got this uh, little, you know, practice. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a, a really good experience having uh, to present in front of my peers and other neuroscientists, and not just like, like a general population. Um, yeah, it was a good experience. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So what does the gene catnap 2 actually do? Right. So, yes, that's a very important question. Uh, we know some things that it does. There uh, are established functions such as um, it codes for a protein called Casper 2. This is a transmembrane protein. It's uh, present in the juxtaparanodes of axons, um, and it's involved in myelination, uh, clustering potassium channels in the juxtaparanodes of axons, uh, stabilizing new synapses during development, and um, many, many other things. Yeah. Okay. So it like covers the nerves near potassium channels, and it helps create it's nerve junctions like to come it together helps, the synapses. Uh, yeah so it helps uh, anchor uh, uh, myelin to the axons okay which yeah. is like so it's like an anchoring yeah. cell adhesion protein I should say okay so yeah. it's like the thing that keeps the plastic around wires if you sure. kind of look at it, it that it, way it's one of connected. the things that helps one of the things okay. for sure yeah, it's yeah. The glue it's the glue between it's the, glue the plastic and the, 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 the <laughs> insulation on the wire 
Sure. Yeah. One of the glues. It, it's part it, of the glue. One of the glues. It's one of one the chemicals of the in the okay. glue. Okay. Yeah. You said catnap is found like this gene is found in humans and it's yes. associated with um, some like is it autism or autism like scenarios or like how do we how do we know right it's, yeah how do we know it's uh, so uh, affected in in humans right okay so um actually catnap 2 was first discovered in an amish community um where it was homozygously knocked out in uh so homozygous they had none of it like, they had not from the mom not from the dad they didn't get any exactly copies. Wow. They so uh, it it has been found in the general population. It can be mutated, but uh, sometimes it doesn't uh, result in a phenotype. Um, so that can happen. But when it's homozygously knocked out, which is uh, when it was uh, discovered in the Amish population, uh, yeah, it caused severe a severe phenotype. Like these uh, children, uh, they like I said had language regression. So at one point, it seemed like they were acquiring language but then that stopped totally so these mm -hmm. people are nonverbal, mm -hmm. um and yeah they have uh, autism uh they have autism right uh they okay. have the symptoms so they have autism mm -hmm. um and uh yeah and they have seizures as well severe seizures um so it, it is a very uh essential gene it's actually one of the largest or i should say the largest gene in the human genome uh wow. it's on chromosome seven Wow. Uh, I know some things <laughs> about the gene, but not too much. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's an essential uh, language acquisition gene, um, and it's important for development, mm. uh, normal uh, language development and whatnot. I just want to clarify. Yes. Not all Amish people have this. No. <laughs> there are <laughs> some that don't, that actually <laughs> still have. Probably Canada. most don't, right? This probably, was probably found most are in a Canada. subset of... Amish okay. population in a yeah. specific community. Okay, just in yes. case there are Amish listening to this, which there probably uh, isn't, we're n nothing against you. No, no. <laughs> it, this was found in some individuals in okay. a community. I'm sure yeah. they they're not worried that they're that she's making a dig at them, but they also <laughs> those that might have it uh, are going to be looking to you <laughs> to sort out how to fix it, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm trying my best. <laughs> I think you're right. doing an excellent job. So. Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, we're just uh, kind of running out of time here, yeah. so thanks a lot yeah. for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been great yeah. having you. It was great talking to you. We're here with Spencer Arbuckle from the Neuroscience Program. Hi, Spencer. Uh, why don't you tell us what you do? Hi. Um, I'm interested in hands. Okay, yeah. hands. Why don't we get a little bit deeper? How, do, how does hands relate to neuroscience? Um, so I'm largely interested in how we control our hands and how we do so with such uh, effective ease that we don't even think about it on a daily life. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah. um, is this, so a lot of people, you know, use like a model to study something. Sounds like you're talking about our hands. In fact, directly looking at human hands. Correct? Uh, yeah, so in a lot of my work, I use um, humans, but um, a lot of the previous work that has been done in this field has focused on um, primates or, or non-human primates is what we call them. Um, now, the great distinction is that across a long lineage of, of evolution and development, um, different kinds of species have had to adapt to different kinds of environment, and that leads to different kinds of hand control. Um, most of that sort of uh, appears as differences in the ability to be very precise with hand movements. So you'll see some monkeys just sort of grab things with a full fist. 
Um, but some monkeys are also able to really well pick up uh, food morsels between their thumb and their, and their index finger. And we call this like a precision grip, basically. Um, and the amazing thing about humans is that not only do we have a precision grip and these full hand grasps, but we also are able to play things like the piano, which to date, I don't know of any animal that can quite play it with, with such skill as a human can. Mm, yeah, fair enough. I think we are the superior piano player, planet, piano playing ape. <laughs> yeah, as far as we know for now. <laughs> as long as we know until someone is going to, someone's definitely going to hear this and train an ape to do it. I mean, <laughs> perhaps it's out there now. <laughs> so, so do you like see how well people can play the piano? Like, how does your study work? Yeah, so since we're interested in humans, um, because we're the best at hand control that we know of so far, um, and that's the people that I study. Uh, we can't use invasive recordings, um, as has been done previ in previous work with, with non-human primates. Um, the way we study hand control is we have participants come into the lab, um, and we measure their activity with uh, an MR machine. So if, if you've ever gone to a hospital, for example, um, and need to have some sort of brain scan done, that's the same kind of machine we use. But we use that machine to take fast images of functional activity. It's, a, it's a basically a proxy of neural activity. It's not a direct measure of what of everything that's happening in the brain, but it gives us a window into what might be happening. And we mostly focus on areas um, that are involved in hand control, so the primary motor cortex and the primary sensory cortex, which is really where a lot of this hand, the tactile information from the hand might be processed. And all we have people do are perform very basic finger movements in the scanner. It's actually probably incredibly boring if I ever ask any of you to, to do this experiment. Oftentimes you're making single finger movements. Sometimes we have people perform these more complex movements and we do all of these movements on a keyboard-like device. So it looks very much like a keyboard, it feels very much like a keyboard, um, and we have different force measures that, that we acquire too, so we can really get a full picture into what the hand, what you're doing with your hand while you're in the scanner. And we try to relate that back to the kind of activity that we measure um, with this MRI. So you're just looking at like where in your in the brain there is activity for each like certain hand movements, finger movements. So like where in your brain is there activity for like when you move your index compared to your middle finger compared to your pinky finger and your thumb, sort of something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's very similar to that. So um, if anyone has ever uh, taken a psychology course um, or any kind of brain and behavior course, they might be very familiar with the idea of something called the motor homunculus. Um, and that's basically this like mapping across the across parts of the brain that are involved in motor control for movements of different limbs or effectors like the leg area and the arm area. Um, and at a at a that that kind of delineation is true to a degree. So a lot of previous fMRI work has focused on brain mapping. Where in the brain do we see these things? And it's hard to mm -hmm. see certain things in different models when you don't know where to look for it, right? Yeah. Um, but now we have a clear idea of, of, or a relatively clear idea of where in the brain um, things are important, uh, or sorry, where in the brain there are things that are important to control or help control fine finger movements. Um, I have to be careful how I say it because there are other parts of the brain that I don't necessarily study that are also implicated in hand control. Um, and now what we do is we look at the pattern of activity in these regions. So there's one way to look at it, which is just classically looking where you see the most activity and kind of saying like that's the hot spot for like the index finger. That's where we that controls the index finger. But actually, what we now know and, and what a lot of um, a lot of work really coming from from AI itself and sort of like the the motivation behind AI is that it's really not one simple 
area that does just one thing. It's, it's a whole population response that helps drive certain kinds of behaviors. So it's not that the one patch might be on, the only patch that controls the index finger. It might be that that's the patch that has the most activity evoked when you move the index finger. But it also needs a lot of help from other areas of the motor cortex. Um, and so that's why we look at the whole pattern of activity. And what's amazing is that these patterns of activity are very different when you measure this um, activity evoked by single finger movements in different people, right? They look quite different. Hmm. There's a general idea that like, and there's a general gradient that, you know, the index finger area will be next to the thumb, for example, area. Uh, and that's largely true. But what's, what's amazing is that these patterns are very variable across people. They're not very good predictors between people. Like your index mm -hmm. finger pattern is very different from my index finger pattern. Um, but what is remarkably unique is the relative similarities between these patterns. So my thumb pattern will be as distinct, or my thumb and index finger patterns will be as different as they are in your brain as they are in my brain, even though the patterns themselves don't look very different. And so what that means effectively is that there's this organizing principle that drives how these patterns are, are evoked in the brain that is not dependent on the spatial arrangement. And that's relatively interesting. And so that's really what we kind of study in the lab is like, what are the organizing principles of these complex finger movements or hand movements in the brain? And, and we're not just restricted to um, uh, single finger movements. We're also looking at cords of movements and these more complex movements that we more often do in everyday life. Now, the incredible thing is that structure of differences is actually really well described by how we use our hands in everyday life. You know, the system that's built, that has evolved to make these everyday movements has an organizing principle that's built on those everyday movements. So there's a clear, um, there's some slight evidence that, you know, there's evolution in play even in the brain. So as we all adapt to different kinds of movements, we might see those evidence of that adaptation you know, thousands of years down the road um, in our quarter, in the way our brain controls movements. So, you know, if we got another appendage, that might suddenly change how the brain has to, like, interact with that appendage. And if we force that appendage on someone for, for generations, for example, then um, their brain might completely adapt to the control of that. Those, uh, those internet-savvy people might have seen the weird pictures out there of uh, people with an extra finger, polydactyly. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, how, how would that fit in with your story? Is anyone uh, studying what you study look yeah. at people like this? That would uh, be super cool. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's actually a, a population of, of folks, I think it's in the United States, who have, who have this um, polydactyl, like basically an extra, I think it's an extra thumb in some instances. Um, and basically, some people have looked at that. Uh, there's a researcher, um, Tamar Mackin, she's at UCL in, in London, England. Um, and she basically has looked at... Um, uh, uh, motor plasticity in the brain. So, so when you have another appendage or when you add a, a fake appendage, basically, do you see changes in these structures? And and so, from what I recall, with the uh, patients with an er with the individuals with an extra finger, um, they do see some slight changes. But the way that you use your hand, um, like the way I'm talking with my hands right now, that none of the listeners right now will ever be able to see, um, <laughs> is really what drives this. So because they've they've been born with this extra hand, this extra thumb that's that's fully operable, right? You can use it no problem. Um, in the brain, we also see evidence that that um, those patterns are equally as different as other fingers, wow. and they're as they're as different as one would expect, given how independent that finger is in movement. 
So it's in to- it's totally incorporated into the same like system. It's just like another. It's like a a regular it's like a finger. completely regular finger. Totally exactly, regular and it, and it truly is. It truly is. That is amazing. Hmm. Okay, so you know you. I guess it's when people say like a hand wavy explanation. That's right. sort of accurate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for it, when tr- you, it truly when you is. Your for work. lack of lack of better so, word. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you uh, how did you like hand waving your explanations today at NRD? Uh, you did a poster, right? Yeah, yeah. How um, was that? It was good. So some of my current work right now is focusing on how we process um, sensory information from our fingers, and that's what the work I presented today was on. Um, And I had a great time. I think the Neuroscience Research Day is an excellent opportunity for people not only in London but also nearby universities to come out and and just kind of meet the faces behind the science (laughs) or the hands behind the science for for a completely (laughs) terrible pun. (laughs) No, that's excellent. So that's cool. Um, so how did it? Uh, how'd you get involved in this uh, hand uh, hand study? How'd you get interested yeah. in hands? <laughs> how'd you get your hands on these hands? Oh, yeah. That's a great question. Um, so I've I actually did not come from a motor control background. Uh, I didn't come from a neuroscience background largely. Um, I have always been um, interested in sports, although my abilities in sports are like very different from my from my interest in it. Um, but I'm I'm really big into rock climbing. Um, I've been uh, a rock climber for multiple years now, and I think it's an amazing community in- indoors and outdoors. It uh, doesn't matter what it is. It's it's a fun time. So if there's anyone out there listening who might ever want to give it a shot, I totally encourage you, go. Um, and that sport's dominated by hand control. Um, there are, Now, it's, it's awesome because in that sport, you know, you have instances of different forms of control that you might need, like these sort of power grasps that might be subserved by these different parts of the brain than these more fine movements such as playing the piano, mm-hmm. um, which often <laughs> probably won't come up as often when you're trying to hang on to something. Um, but it, it kind of encompasses a whole bunch of things that I'm interested in. That's what really drove me to be interested in this. But but now the interest is basically fully self-sustained and that I think hands are really amazing. They're a d- defining characteristic of people and our, our ability as people to be um, complex cognitive creatures that interact with tools. Um, and it's really interesting to see the variety of hand abilities across the animal kingdom who have hands. So like where in the brain is all this information going to? Like when you, like the sensory information you get from your hands, where does, where does that actually go? And like, where are you looking when you use an MRI? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So um, when we use an MRI, in at least in the work I do, we're focusing on um, largely areas of the cortex that are near the, the skull, um, just because they're closer to basically where we acquire these measurements. So they're not as affected by like noise and stuff. We, when I say noise, I basically mean like things that obscure the real measurement. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot, there's, a, there's an obscene amount of um, pathways that project to sensory areas in the motor cortex and also descend from sensory areas in the motor cortex. And they innervate various regions of the brainstem, the spinal cord, and some just project right from the motor cortex right down to the motor neurons in the spinal cord that then Hmm. innervate your hand muscles. So there's a, a very complicated system at play. It's almost like you had an old computer and instead of just upgrading by buying a new computer, you sort of like bought some parts and put it on. 
And then over the years, you bought more parts and put them on. And at some point, you had something that looks like a computer, that acts like a computer, that does computer things. But it's if something breaks, like good luck trying to figure out what part it is because you have so much sort of put together. And that's kind of the complexity of the motor system that we deal with, especially when it comes to hands. So it's just a pimped out computer. Uh, almost, yeah, but that makes it sound like very nice and logical. <laughs> but actually, some things just sort of grow and evolve, and as the system adapts over a long hmm. period of time, you get these compensatory, compensatory mechanisms that just stay permanently. Okay. Well, uh, I feel like we're, we could go all day talking about hands, oh, yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, we're out of time, and it's been great having you on the show to tell us about your work and. Uh, hand wavy way <laughs> in a good way <laughs> thank you so thanks for coming on of course thanks a lot Ariel and Greg yeah thanks for coming on we are here with Andy Owen from the neuroscience program Andy thanks for coming yeah thanks for having me do you want to tell us a little bit about your uh, about your research yeah uh, so I'm co-supervised uh, by Doctors Matthew Hebb uh, in University Hospital and John Ronald uh, in he's a, a Robarts scientist and part of the collaborative molecular imaging group. Um, my particular project studies a type of brain cancer called glioblastoma, and we're trying to sort out a novel therapy for it uh, using uh, a, a cellular delivery system uh, to the cancer. Ultimately, for delivery of a therapeutic. Cool. So, so when you say novel delivery system, it's presumably that's the that's the problem is trying to get the drugs there, right? Is that the issue? Right. Yeah. That I mean, it's one of the many issues with uh, glioblastoma and other uh, CNS-related cancers. Uh, you have issues of the blood-brain barrier. Um, being somewhat impenetrable. Uh, you also have the particular location of a patient's tumor. You know, they may or may not be able to resect it, uh, you know, in, in neurosurgery and, you know, remove enough of a chunk of it that it's no longer fatal, uh, which ultimately these cancers are. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, just a uh, quick local reference, uh, the drummer from Rush, Neil Pert, uh, he just recently died of glioblastoma, mm-hmm. and he's one of many, many, you know, going back. Um, I think uh, the singer from Tragically Hip. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, oh, that yeah. was yeah. glioblastoma too. Yeah, right? that was glioblastoma. How common is it? Oh, just I, rock stars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just <laughs> rock stars. Um, now I. I can't remember the exact figure off the top of my head, so I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to spit it out. Okay. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, it, it's, I mean, brain cancers are somewhat rare, but of brain cancers, uh, gliomas are the most common primary tumor. Um, there's there's other types of cancers that will metastasize to the brain, uh, but these uh, originate there. Mm-hmm. So. so these are the glia. The glioma is from the glia cells, glial cells. Yeah. So what exactly is a glial cell? Uh, It's part of the the CNS immune system, uh, you know, to to speak roughly to it, uh, which are still made up of uh, a number of different cell types, um, but regulating a lot of function, um, 
in different areas of the brain and uh, helping ultimately just keep things clean. Yeah. You know. So that they're like the other cells compared <laughs> to neurons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah one of yeah. the other groups. Yeah. Okay. So and when then we like talk, when we talk about the central nervous system, yeah. we think just about the nerves, which are the neurons. Yeah. But uh, so that's the CNS. But but it, within that CNS, you know, the nerves can't do it on their own. The neurons yeah. can't do it on their own. So the yeah. glia are really important. Yeah. And uh, they seem to, when they go awry, seem to be like really bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, even uh, you know to kind of plant the seed for us today at the conference I saw a number of different posters that were about uh, astrocytes and and microglia and you know all of these quote-unquote other cells you know that we kind of gloss over because we're so focused on the neurons themselves um, but yeah we're we're just constantly learning more about the different regulatory functions that they have and some of them are capable of some sort of signaling mechanisms. Um, you know, I I personally won't speak on it because I don't know enough, but I I know that it is a thing. You know, and and people are working to try and figure out how these are all working in concert. All right, so it, you know, you've said now that it's it's tough to get in there uh, yeah. when you want to get a drug or you want to. I mean, even even like you said, resecting, you gotta snip out the tumor if there's a tumor in there, and that's even hard to do. Yeah. So, um, with this uh, novel cell, novel novel delivery system, how do you do it? What's the delivery? How do you, how do you get in there? Uh, so, what we're focusing on right now is trying to uh, hone and develop the animal model that we're using, uh, and and we use a particular breed of rat that uh, is capable of receiving uh, what's known as the F ninety eight cell line, which is uh, a, a glioma cell line that's particular to that breed and we inject those into an area of the brain where they're able to grow um, you know somewhat unrestricted and uh, a little while after that we add another cell type uh, into the mix and we're trying to figure out just how long they can live in the tumor and you know to to fast forward a little bit, uh, one of the goals would be to engineer those cells uh, that we're adding into the glioma with a uh, with a system that basically activates a cellular suicide signaling system inside the cancerous cells, sparing the neighboring neurons. So are you are you saying it's sort of like an undercover agent? It's kind of like a, ce a cell that's sort of like cancer, but it gets in there and then tells the other cancer buddies, like, yeah, trust me, take the Kool-Aid. Basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a bit of a Trojan horse <laughs> kind of system. Um, and Interesting. Yeah, uh, it, it's been under development by different labs you know, all over the world for the last couple of decades, and in different research models, people are having really good success, you know, with um, inoculating uh, the, their lab animals, you know, with the appropriate forms of cancer, you know, depending on the type of species they're working with, and then delivering a therapeutic cell line uh, into, ultimately into the tumor, but uh, the injection routes may be different. There's uh, people that will inject it directly into the tumor as we're testing out uh, in our labs. There's 
uh, intranasal delivery, there's uh, intravenous delivery. Um, depending on where in the brain the tumor is, you can't always get to it, and so there's uh, some groups have shown you could even put the therapeutic cells in the contralateral hemisphere and they could cross over, you know, or move, um, you know, deeper or, uh, or more shallow into other areas of the brain depending on how diffuse the tumor is because uh, it's uh, not often you know a, a solid sphere or anything it's typically quite fibrous and uh, reaches into multiple areas of the brain um, also leading to the complication of if you can even try and cut it out you might not really be getting that much of it anyway mm. so. I mean, it sounds sounds kind of grim. Uh, if if you are trying to cut it out, um, you you kind of want to know where it is. How do you how do you know? How do you check? Is there a way to check? How do you check in your model? Uh, in in our model, uh, we could visualize the tumor using uh, MRI. Um, but the uh, one of the things that we're engineering into these cells that we're injecting into the tumor are uh, molecular imaging. Uh, reporter genes and one of them is actually taken from the common firefly and it uh, under reaction with the substrate ends up emitting photons of light and so we we can basically uh, position this camera right over it I mean it's not a regular film camera or anything it's a, a special CCD camera you don't just pull out your iPhone? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe by the time they get to, like, iPhone 12, we could do it. But, okay. Um, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, we can actually record uh, the precise number of photons that the cells are releasing, you know, based on their interaction with the substrate. And we could correlate that to the number of cells that are present, um, you know, in and or around the tumor. Um, so... That's one of the things that my project right now is focusing on is trying to standardize that. Uh, we're we're not exactly sure yet of how well this uh, particular substrate will get into the tumor so that the reporter cells can take it up and, and give off their signal. Um, we also don't know just how hospitable that uh, that environment within the tumor is, and so we don't have a great estimate yet of how many of the originally injected cells are surviving and proliferating. Um, so, you know, check back with me in a few months, and maybe I'll have some of those questions answered. I mean, those sounds like Hopefully. sound like really important questions to answer. So, I mean, your study is going to be really helpful for future studies that want to go forward and like make sure they get this uh, delivery system, you know, yeah. tuned up well. Um, so, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, today at the poster session, you were presenting a poster, yeah. um, wondering how, how you liked it. It's our second neuroscience research day that we've had before. So I say we, because I also in the neuroscience program yeah. and I was there. <laughs> um, how did you like that presenting that? Were you able to convey the importance of your, of your work? Yeah. Yeah. I got a decent number of people that came by and, and checked out the work and, uh, and it was nice because, you know, I saw some familiar faces, but then actually 
quite a few people that I hadn't seen before, um, and some of them were from other institutions that made it here for the day, but others were local, and, you know, we just hadn't had a chance to cross paths yet. Um, so, yeah, like I was saying before, I got to I got to see a wide selection of research being presented, and, you know, ultimately, um, I, I think everybody seemed to really enjoy it, you know, and it built off of last year pretty well, I thought. I have one more quick question for you. I'm just uh, curious. So, like, we all know cancer's bad. Mm-hmm. That's pretty obvious, right? Especially if it's metastatic. But, like, what specifically does this cancer actually do to humans? Uh, well, unfortunately, by the time most people end up finding out that they have uh, glioblastoma, it's because some you know, pretty serious quality of life uh, issues have arisen, whether, you know, they, they may end up having seizures or are losing vision on one side or maybe having some motor issues, and and that's all dependent on where their particular cancer is yeah. in their brain. And So it could be vastly different. Yeah, yeah, wow. completely. And um, from patient to patient, you know, they, they can occur in different areas of the brain and, you know, some are a little more solid and others are a little more, you know, diffuse and yeah. tentacle-like. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily know until you've then got this issue going on and after probably uh, a little bit of back and forth with your doctor and maybe some special referrals, you end up going in for an MRI and, you know, they have some unfortunate news for you. Yeah. And that is some scary, scary stuff. Yeah. Well, really hoping that, uh, you know, people that I don't get it, none of us get it, that yeah. like very few people get it uh, until you find out how to treat it and then <laughs> they can have it and we can just get rid of it. No problem. But yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for, you know, doing your work and uh, coming on the show to tell us about it. Uh, it's been great having you on here. Yeah, thanks for having me, and and thanks to everybody I work with for training me on how to do all of this. Because you know it was uh, quite the black box when I first got here, and you know I'm I'm glad to be a part of it. So excellent. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks. That wraps up this episode of GradCast. You've been listening to our coverage of Neuroscience Research Day with interviews hosted by Ariel Frame and Greg Robinson. If you would like to get involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on the radio at chrw94.9 FM. You can also find all of our podcast episodes on our website, gradcast.ca, or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.